Welcome back to the Temporary Fandoms podcast, where we gamely assault entire discographies in order to try and understand what makes certain bands work. We started life as a Facebook group that soldiers on at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans, and you're more than welcome to join. We're a friendly bunch, and if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you've met several members already. Meanwhile, back on the podcast incarnation of this musical folly, we've taken on ESG, The Pogues, The Butthole Surfers, David Bowie, Yola Tango, Can, and Queens of the Stone Age. Today, it's the turn of Spoon. You can find us all over the place, but we're hosted at Beat Rehab. That's beat.rehab slash tempfans, which includes links to the Spotify edit of the show, where the album introductions are intercut with sample tracks. It's by far my favourite way to listen, and if you're all up to date with your temp fans listening, you can dip your toes into the often hilarious Dancing About Architecture podcast. Anyhow, the question we're posing today is what makes Spoon tick? Join me, Ewan, Emily Baldoni and William Shun as temp fans take on Austin's most consistent pop rock post-punk revivalists, Spoon. Hello there, welcome to episode 12, 13, 14, 14, 14 of 10, how, I, listen, I genuinely forget every time, I don't know how, it's like I've got some mental block, episode 14, or season 2, episode 2, if you're keeping track. Is that how the seasons work? Okay, I didn't know that. We're on seasons. Excellent. Um, (laughs) The last episode was Queens of the Stone Age. So uh, go and listen to that where you found this. Um, As Nick will no doubt have said in his pre-credits intro, there is a Spotify playlist somewhere. Doesn't work on Shuffle, but honestly, that's a really good way to um, digest um, the pod. In fact... Guest today, Emily Baldoni, who you will remember from previous pods, I believe commented on the Facebook group that it's a perfect way to drive through the mountains. Uh, I mean, through the mountains. or I, I drove through the mountains. I also drove across uh, like the flatlands of the Midwestern United States listening to the podcast. It was quite good for both of them. It was a good, you know, good mixture of music to, to words. Um, Good for maintaining your attention in both in all landscapes, all landscapes. <laughs> Works now, in all landscapes. Our, Excellent. That has, <laughs> to be a, a, that has to be a tagline. Works in all um, landscapes. For, for a lad from the, the centre of England, uh, Wolverhampton, um, the idea that my my voice is is being listened to as people drive across the Midwest still seems a little bit surreal, even if it is only just one car. So that was Emily Baldoni, who last time was on was the Bowie Pods. And we're also joined by um, author of The Accidental Terrorist, William Shun. Hey, hey, Bill. Hi, how's it going? Not too bad. Um, oh, I haven't done this in a, many a pod. Where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from Upper Manhattan in New York City. And... Uh, I hear your voices on the podcast while I'm doing the dishes, <laughs> just around the corner. Perfect for any household chore. Um, so, Bill, who are we going to be looking at today? Today we're going to be talking about the indie rock darlings from Austin, Texas, Spoon. Awesome. And how many albums? Uh, nine studio albums from Spoon, plus one side project, The Divine Fits. Cool, and we'll get, obviously get to that in the round table. Um, why? Why Spoon? Spoon, well, besides being one of my favorite bands, uh, I think they are the quintessential American 
indie rock band in that uh, they fought their way up from minor success to um, to having their dreams devastated to rebuilding everything from the ground up and have made themselves a little uh, cottage industry with a mix of rock minimalism, really poetic lyrics full of allusions and just more different kinds of hooks than you can shake a stick at. And they've changed their sound constantly over 20 years. And I just find them to be an inspiration. Awesome. Perfect. Um, well, I know for a fact that I mean, you're a big fan. I'm a big fan. Emily, where are you on or pre-listen and preparation for this? Where were you on the spoonometer of fandom? Yeah, so I mean, I was I was actually kind of interested to to listen them, to them again because I I listened to Spoon a lot when I was in college actually because um, a couple of those early albums, what I think um, like Girls Can Tell and Kill Kill the Moonlight, both came out when I was when I was in college and I listened to them a lot then and then I sort of just I kind of fell off them and I didn't I hadn't listened to them for years and years before that so I was sort of curious to see whether it was that my taste had changed or whether it was things that changed in their sound or or what of course and um regular listeners will know that we've had a few episodes in the past that were let's say nick driven and um for example can you may not have realized that i wasn't the massive can fan after listening to those two episodes but this episode was brought back by me and nick was slightly reticent so nick how is your spoon well monitor before we started? Well, well monitor. Well monitor. How is your well, 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 well monitor? <laughs> well, it's um, I'm, it's 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 pointing towards under. Okay. Let well, we'll find out how under or overwhelmed uh, everybody is when we come back. Um, slightly different setup this time. Instead of one voice talking you through all the spoon albums, you're going to hear both uh, Bill and mine alternating sort of I just sort of wanted to get involved too. and you'll hear all of that after this hello temp fans I could not be more excited to introduce one of my favorite bands in the world who are not just meticulous craftsmen in the studio but also a ferocious live act a little outfit from Austin, Texas, called Spoon. Since first discovering them a little late, back around 2004, I've seen them live probably half a dozen times. I've bought every new album on its release day, and I've scoured eBay and Discogs.com and less reputable corners of the internet to gather every last recorded scrap of Spoon-related ephemera I can lay hands on. Hello, my name is Bill, and I'm a Spoonaholic. But the highly polished juggernaut that is Spoon today bears only a passing resemblance to the scrappy little band that came together in Austin in 1994. How did they get from there to here? Songwriter and vocalist Britt Daniel grew up in the central Texas town of Temple, where, as he told the magazine Texas Monthly in 2004, his taste in music made him the coolest kid in high school. It's just that nobody else knew it. Britt arrived at the University of Texas in 1989, where he pursued a radio television film degree and played in a number of bands. One of those groups, Skellington, 
named for the Julian Cope album, issued a couple of releases on tiny local labels. And Britt put out a couple of extremely lo-fi solo releases on cassette tape under the name Drake Tungsten. But it was a country rockabilly band called Alien Beats that would change the course of his life. That's where, in 1992, Britt met drummer Jim Eno, a slightly older electrical engineer who had just moved to Austin to design microchips for Motorola. Alien Beats broke up, but Britt and Jim hit it off enough to form a new band, which they called Spoon, naming it somewhat randomly after a song by the krautrock group Can. And incidentally, you may have heard a thing or two about Can on a couple of earlier episodes of this podcast. Britt and Jim have been the rhythm and soul of Spoon ever since, the constant nucleus of an ever-evolving lineup that originally also included Andy McGuire on bass and harmony vocals. Their first EP, Nefarious, came out from Fluffer Records in 1994. They recorded their spiky, full-length debut, Telefono, in producer John Croslin's garage studio for about $3,000, then started shopping it around. They eventually signed with Matador Records, which prompted Britt to quit his job as a sound effects engineer for a video game company. Telefono came out in 1996 and immediately attracted a small but fanatical fan base, some of whom still think it's their best album. Though at first listen, this album would seem to be a pretty standard issue, soft, loud, soft affair in the vein of the Pixies or Wire. On closer inspection, the songs reveal themselves to be more loosely structured and surprising than they first appear. You'd be forgiven for thinking Brit Daniel had been mainlining Nirvana and little else, but scattered across the singles and EPs from these years, not to mention the Drake Tungsten cassettes, you can find covers of The Godfathers, The Cure, Paul McCartney, and Prince. It might not have been obvious yet, but those influences were also part of the DNA that would find full expression on Spoon's later releases. Soft effects and a series of sneaks. Usually on Temp Fans, we only really focus on full studio albums, but the Soft Effects EP was a pivotal step. It linked the rough and ready, wire-infused, Pixies-esque telephono with what was yet to come. From the opener, mounting to sound, we get a feeling of a band evolving. Simple rhythms, but they're getting repeated on, looped back in, built on, and then discarded. Brit still has the 90s alternative screech. I was never a big fan of this. Evoking Black Francis, the band still seemed to be taking a step away from simply being another Pixies-inspired clone, and they started to take shape. The slur he uses on waiting for the kids to come out, perfectly wrapped up in this angular stop-start pop and tight sounds. And we can already hear Brit singing and responding to himself. This call and response is a mechanism the band used several times uh, to fantastic effect in later albums. Nothing here outstays its welcome. I can see the dude is a sub two minute piece of classic 90s indie. Big soundscapes and then stops suddenly and makes way for the fuzzy get out of the state. Again, a tight, but this time laconic and broody track. And it builds and builds and builds and then leaves you in the hands of some wistful power pop of lost leaders. As EPs go, it's an essential part of the band's canon. And personally, for me, a better place to start than Telefono. 
which can leave me a bit cold. So if soft effects was this bridge, what was on the other side? Well, the time at Matador was up. Feelings from the band that Matador treated them as one of their more commercial acts. They signed to Electra, releasing both the 30-gallon tank EP and a series of sneaks within a week or two. The EP act as their big, hey guys, we're on a new label, Claxon. Utilitarian kicks in and kicks in hard. Carries on this angular jangle with another sub two minute track. It has no right to contain as many grooves as it does. Brit screaming out it's utilitarian. This is a band who are confident. They now know who they are and they are ready to be commercially and critically successful. The band are now essentially a three piece with new bassist Josh Zabo fleshing out this new tight lineup. And this album clocks in at 33 minutes, but spews out 14, yeah, 14 of the catchiest tracks you would hear in 98, which in the US was the year of Neutral Milk Hotel and whole celebrity skin. One of the longest tracks clocks in at a whole four minutes, and it's the broody, punchy, hook-filled, post-post-post-punk 30-gallon tank. It barrels away with raw energy and seems to be building and building to something that only Brit knows. As an aside, this album, like with most of Spoon's stuff, seriously rewards listening on headphones. You have isolated instruments floating around you, coming in and leaving you wanting more. And as a band, they truly are exceptional as a production force. Not the sexiest motif I know, but one I will come back to in later albums. With Car Radio, sorry, Radio, Metal Detector and Utilitarian, the band were ready for their next big step. A commercial hit. And with Electra's A&R man Ron Lafitte ready to fight for them, nothing could go wrong. Well, I'll leave that story up to Bill. Well, Spoon fans, not so fast. I'm afraid it's my sad duty now to relate a true tale of misery and woe that might have broken a lesser band, and nearly did this one. Our friend Ron Lafitte, the ultra-slick Electra VP who promised Spoon the world? Yeah, well, after a series of sneaks was released, Lafitte started acting squirrely, dodging Spoon's phone calls and never showing up at any of their shows. The advertising push never materialized either. Four months later, Lafitte was fired from Electra, something he had probably known was coming for some time. It wasn't much longer before Electra, with a low-selling album on their hands that they didn't understand, dropped Spoon as well, despite the multi-album contract. A less ambitious band would have retreated to lick its wounds. In fact, Spoon did that for a while as well. Britt Daniel moved to New York and took a job at Citibank, thinking the band was done. But Spoon eventually pulled themselves together and vented their anger in as public a way as possible. 1999 saw the release of the single The Agony of Lafitte, backed with Lafitte Don't Fail Me Now, on Saddle Creek Records. This was a tiny Nebraska label founded by Connor Oberst, who as a teenaged fan had met Spoon in Omaha on their tour for Telefono. Despite the punny titles, the two tracks dripped with mournful vitriol for the slick huckster who had screwed them over. When they started touring again, the Lafitte single made them minor heroes to the fans who turned out to see them. Encouraged, Spoon began recording again, 
not just on their own, but on their own terms. Brit had become interested in adding instruments beyond guitar, bass, and drums to their sonic palette, and in infusing his songwriting with a more classic pop sensibility. Jim Eno, for his part, was becoming more and more proficient as an audio engineer. Mike McCarthy, who kept crossing paths with Brit at parties in New York, was tapped as a producer, a role he would continue to play right up through 2007's Ga 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 Ga. He talked about those recording sessions with Magnet Magazine in 2015, saying, I thought Brit was a star poet, a voice for a generation, and he has the most awesome, uniquely original and instantly identifiable voice. What's special about him is the sound of that voice and what he's saying. We also had an unwritten law back then. Every part had to be critical to making the song happen. If it wasn't, it was gone. Britt's occasional girlfriend at the time was Eleanor Friedberger, who would soon find her own success as half of the fiery furnaces with her brother Matthew. I have a really distinct memory of listening for the first time to Everything Hits at Once, she said to Magnet Magazine also. It's so radically different than anything he'd done before. This was the beginning of what we now recognize as the spoon sound. Stripped down and precise, every element in its right place, with Brit's voice and songwriting married to Jim's monster sense of rhythm. Originally titled French Lessons, Spoon began shopping their new album around to labels. The process took some time, but the record eventually made its way to Superchunk's Mac McCon, co-founder of Merge Records, who promptly signed them. The record came out in 2001 under the title Girls Can Tell, and it was a hit, at least by indie rock standards. Just as importantly though, especially in light of their bad experience at Elektra, it was something that Spoon themselves could be proud of. As Britt told the Austin Chronicle that year, this record is the first one I really like enough to say, okay, we did something that if we're no longer a band next year, I'm always gonna be, I really like this one. I think it's really good. It's something that, at least for me, will stand the test of time. Only 18 months after Girls Can Tell, Spoon released Kill the Moonlight, to immediate critical and popular acclaim. No more hawking their wares from the back of a van, so to speak. They had suffered the agony of Lafitte and finally were getting somewhere. By now you know I'm enamoured with Spoon's affinity for the short album format, and this one clocks in at around 35 minutes, with the 12 tracks filling in a spacious yet minimalist soundscape, built around melodic and catchy piano yes, piano and guitar hooks. 12 songs, 35 minutes. Perfect. Brit and Jim wanted to do something a bit different from their peers at the time. Brit. What most indie rock bands at that time were doing seemed lazy. That's what indie rock was. Lazy. We wanted to make a record that was not lazy and was not afraid to show that we wanted to put some creativity and ideas into this thing. So they took inspiration from sources such as Elvis Costello and the Attractions, bringing in these new wave sounds to the piano hooks. Brit again. When I listen to Kill the Moonlight now, it sounds like an album of new wave demos. But it worked. I remember being at a wedding with Jim Eno after it came out, and I said, that's definitely our best album. 
This album was churned out in no time at all. Producer Mike McCarthy had other commitments, so they were down to six weeks studio time. And then Jim's tape machine went, knocking another two weeks off. This is a Beatles-esque album turnaround. Small stakes and the way we get by are starting off the album in style, meshing the maturity of Girls Can Tell with the hooks and melodies of a series of sneaks. This is the new Spoon Sound, precisely produced, minimalistic, and catchy as hell. One of the other standout tracks is Jonathan Fisk. I mean, just for a second, imagine being bullied at school, making it in a band, and then finding out your ex-bully is a fan who comes to your shows. Then write a song about it. Um, Brit. On Jonathan Fisk, I, hadn't, I haven't seen him in a while, but there was a time I could count on him being at pretty much all our Austin shows. He was one of those guys that was into metal in middle school. And I liked some metal, but I was more into New Wave. Somehow that represented what was a conflict between us, because I was looked at as gay. That's the way it came across to people in Temple, Texas. Maybe they also didn't like my personality, but I don't think my personality was very loud, but it wasn't really one of their problems. Anyway, he was a metal guy, and by the time he got into college, he was now into The Cure and became real liberal. He was an interesting guy. I think he was still angry, but he wasn't angry with new wavers or who he perceived of as homosexuals anymore. He seemed to have had a transformation. So, for me, this album's fantastic. Um, it is minimalistic. Uh, there's some catchy little tunes, a couple of standout tracks. It's not quite uber spooned yet, but we're getting there. And finally, after the string of bad luck, this is the album that finally buried the idea of them being underdogs. Having burned their sound to the ground on Kill the Moonlight, Spoon set about building it back up on Gimme Fiction. There's a wider array of sounds and instruments on display than ever before, including cello and viola, while the songwriting goes to more fanciful, dark, and abstract places, full of apocalyptic imagery, references from Brit's evangelical Christian upbringing, and surreal narrative turns. I particularly like The Two Sides of Monsieur Valentine, which is all about a play called The Stranger Dance that exists nowhere outside Brit's imagination. According to an interview with NPR, Gimme Fiction was influenced to a large extent by Princes Around the World in a Day and The Beatles' Revolver, which can be heard in its psychedelic sounds, explicitly in the guitar solo on The Delicate Place, its studio trickery, and its off-kilter rhythms. On this last score, Brit points to Sister Jack, which the band worked on with John McIntyre from Tortoise. McIntyre pushed them to experiment with time signatures, which you can hear in the extra beat thrown in at the end of every other bar on the out chorus. Bassist Josh Zarbo, who had been with Spoon since a series of sneaks, left the band during the Gimme Fiction sessions. He had quit the band two or three times before this, wrestling with a desire to go back to school. In fact, Zarbo only plays on one track on this album, My Mathematical Mind. Brit himself plays most of the rest of the bass on Gimme Fiction, along with about a dozen other instruments. My Mathematical Mind also features piano by Eric Harvey, who would soon become a full member of the band and stay with them through They Want My Soul. This was the first album to land Spoon on the Billboard 200, 
pushed by the dancey, princey, voyeuristic single, I Turn My Camera On. Gimme Fiction spent five weeks on that chart, peaking at number 44. To me, this may be Spoon's best record, although I go back and forth on that. It's a real headphone album, and I always find new layers and details when I put it on. Amazingly though, it was soon followed by a non-album single as good as nearly anything on it, called My First Time Volume 3. Is this a reference to a porno vid? I don't know, but you should definitely look this track up on Spotify. And the next year, another excellent new track, The Book I Write, showed up on the soundtrack to the Will Ferrell movie Stranger Than Fiction, which Brit also helped to score, and which contains a few older spoon tracks to boot. Can we call this one an indie blockbuster? Gaga, gaga, ga. I, I always get the gars wrong. Possibly the most spoony of all Spoon albums. Comes out in 2007. And this was my entry point into Spoon. They were building off the success, both commercial and critical, of Gimme Fiction. And what we get is an absolute classic. From the opener, Don't Make Me a Target, we get an exquisitely crafted album, clocking in at 36 minutes. Catchy banger after catchy banger. I know I keep going back to how short the albums are, but in this day and age it's refreshing sometimes to have something so unashamedly tight and not baggy. I am aware of the irony of talking about keeping things tight when previous uh, episodes of this podcast have clocked in just over two hours. Anyway, I could talk about every single song for hours, from the hand claps and the underdog to the brick call and response in The Ghost of You Lingers. So damn good. There's not a single bad track on this. We've got Don't Make Me a Target, Rhythm and Soul, which includes possibly the only reference to Egg and Soldiers. And the, let's be honest, classic pop rock ballad closer in Black Like Me. Lyrically, this album shines with its principled eclecticism. He smells like the insides of closets upstairs, the kind where nobody goes. I spent the night in the map room, I humanized the vacuum. Tracked houses, square couches, short legs and square shoulders, potholders, egg and soldiers. Spoon began the year 2010 in a strange place. It was two and a half years since Gaga Gaga Ga, the album that put them on the map for many listeners. Based on its aggregated music reviews, the website Metacritic had just declared Spoon the best artists of the decade. And Spoon was about to deliver a new album that could be seen as backpedaling on their newfound reputation for slick and slightly bombastic pop. Transference was the first Spoon album in many years to be produced by Brit Daniel and Jim Eno alone. As Brit explained to The Guardian at the time, his usual process was to make a demo and then argue with Mike McCarthy about how much of it they could use. But this time McCarthy, who was also producing bands like And You Will Know Us by the Trail of Dead, Heartless Bastards, and Wild Sweet Orange, only had input on a couple of tracks. With Transference, Brit said, the demo is the record. You can't recreate that spontaneity. 
There is, in fact, a raw, unfinished, and somewhat unsettling quality to Transference. I find it interesting that while the cover of Gaga Gaga Ga featured a stark black and white photo of a sculptor with her back to the camera, the new album uses an oversaturated color photo of a teenage boy slouched in an overstuffed chair, but mischievously glancing off to the side. Maybe Spoon is trying to tell us, despite the heavy subject matter, that they're still not going to take themselves too seriously. Propelled by skewed singles like The Mystery Zone, which cuts off abruptly in mid-chorus, and written in reverse, Transference spent 10 weeks on the Billboard 200, peaking at number four. But after playing 132 shows over the course of 2010, Spoon as a band went on the back burner for a while. Jim Eno focused more on his producing career for a while, helming albums for artists like Black Joe Lewis, Heartless Bastards, Telekinesis, and Harmar Superstar, while his Austin recording studio, Public Hi-Fi, hosted recording sessions by Alejandro Escovedo, Arcade Fire, and even Justin Timberlake. Meantime, for Brit Daniel, it was time to make a little side excursion. Quick detour, just for a minute. Indulge me. It's indie supergroup time. 2012, Brit teamed up with Dan Buckner from the simply amazing Wolf Parade and Handsome Furs to produce an album that sounds like Spoon and Handsome Furs, but not like either of them. And there's nothing here that makes it the best Handsome Furs or Wolf Parade album or the best Spoon work, but it's still so damn good. It's more electronic than Brit's usual stuff. And there's a lot from this album that he takes into future albums after this. And he and, he and Dan share the singing duty, and you can tell which song is more spoony and which songs are more wolf parade but it's still the divine fits. Personal highlights would be the excellent Flagging a Ride or My Love is Real. It's a great little album, and it deserves to be in there in a spoon listening session. But anyway, I said a minute and I've already gone over. It might be glib to say that Brit Daniels' time with Divine Fitz reinvigorated Spoon, but it undeniably altered the band's trajectory. After all, when Brit returned his focus to Spoon, he brought keyboardist Alex Fischel along with him from Divine Fitz. This made the core of Spoon a five-piece for the first and only time, with both Fischel and Eric Harvey playing both keys and guitars. Utility men all around. It's also undeniable that Spoon came roaring back with a crackling, focused LP, filled with some gorgeous new sounds. The band shared production duties this time with two legendary producer engineers, Joe Ciccarelli and Dave Fridman. Ciccarelli had produced everyone from Elton John, Al Stewart, and Frank Zappa to Oingo Boingo, Beck, Morrissey, and U2. Fridman was most closely associated with Flaming Lips, but had also worked the boards for Sparkle Horse, Mercury Rev, Slater Kinney, Tame Impala, and Phantom Planet. As Brit told Pitchfork around that time, producing an album entirely on their own had been such an ordeal on the last go-round 
that they wanted someone else to share the responsibility. Although plenty of the tracks on They Want My Soul sizzle, the highlights for me are the more down-tempo, ruminative tracks like Inside Out and Do You. I especially recommend watching the surreal music video that Hiro Murai directed for Do You, which slowly unfolds from a close-up of Brit bleeding behind the wheel of a vintage Plymouth to reveal a truly bizarre apocalypse engulfing the streets of Los Angeles. You just have to see it. Released on a new label called Loma Vista, this one pretty much duplicated the chart performance of Transference, spending 10 weeks on the Billboard 200 and peaking at number four. Which brings us to 2017. Heart Thoughts, or as I like to think of it, the Prince album. This is an unashamed pop album with funk and guitar riffs. This is no longer a rock album, this is pop. Brit. Inside Out is kind of where it began. I knew I loved that track. It was atmospheric and had some soundscapey bits, but with this heavy beat. It was essentially a pop song. What do we have now? We've got uh, Can I Sit Next to You, First Caress, Do I Have to Talk You Into It, Which When I Listen to Hear It, and the opening track Hot Thoughts. Jangly guitars, loads of fun, oodles of sex appeal. Um, this is a great, great album. Symmetry is also quite interesting here. If you take the album as two sides of a, of a vinyl, the first track, the second, the third, the fourth, all mirror each other. They mirror their opposite number on the opposite side in terms of speed or style or in some tune. I'd love to talk about the, the final song, but I listened to it once when the album came out and I heard panpipes and I hated it and I never listened to it again. Anyway, we've got to the point now where Spoon have evolved and they're still churning out amazing album after amazing album. Um, And I cannot wait to see what's next. And hopefully, we won't have to wait for long. Hello, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. This is the round table part of the podcast. about five minutes ago, all of my microphones and headphones and stuff stopped working very well. So hopefully we'll get through the next hour or so uh, without any more technical shenanigans. Um, with Nick and myself, we still have uh, William Shun. Hey, Bill. Hello. And of course, Emily Baldoni. Hey, Emily. Hello. And we are going to get on it. So, um, Bill, can you set the scene for us? Austin, Texas. What was going on back in the 90s? Uh, there was a lot of, uh, a whole lot of, of indie noise going on. Um, back in 1992, Britt Daniel was 22 and uh, drummer Jim Eno was 27. And they, uh, they met in a country rockabilly band called the Alien Beats, which was wait, just wait, wait. one. Country rockabilly? Yes. I, Sounds I, all right how, to me. I can't, how old were they again? Uh, Britt was 22. Jim was 27. And uh, I guess uh, Jim had just come to 
had just come to town uh, as an electrical engineer. He was designing microchips for Motorola. Um, A lot of technology in Austin, drawing people to that area. And uh, Britt had been working in video games, doing uh, sound design and things like that. And he was uh, finishing up a, a radio television film degree at the University of Texas. Britt Daniel had previously been in a band called Skellington, uh, just to throw in another reference, which was named after the Julian Cope album. And they had put out a couple of of uh, small releases on indie labels. And on his own, Britt did a few very lo-fi solo recordings under and the name Drake, Drake Tungsten. Bitch. And Drake Tungsten was the one that had, well, I can't believe Kurt Cobain <laughs> is dead. I was going to mention that. But I think that pretty much sums up the aesthetic of, of Drake Drake Tungsten. The It's a short song. The first two lines are, I can't believe that uh, that Kurt Cobain is dead. I wish that it were Axl Rose instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a, that's a good start. And it also sets up a good example of the sort of acerbic wit that we, we, we tend to get from Brit later. At some point in this pod, I may refer to him as Brett because my brain <laughs> has just been mixing up those two words all day. Okay, so the original lineup, um, we've got Jim, Eno, we've got Brit. Was there anybody else that came involved um, for the first album? The first, the first album, um, after the Alien Beats broke up, they put together Spoon, and that included uh, a female bass player named Andy McGuire, who only lasted through that one album. And they put out a, uh, an EP called Nefarious on a small label, and with that, they got signed to Matador. And Britt was able to, or able to, was empowered, emboldened to quit his job doing uh, sound effects for video games. Okay. Um, and Telefono was, what year are we talking? 90? The uh, Telefono came out in 96, looks like. Uh, the Nefarious EP was 94. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, um, I'm not going to be, even if, I, I know it's probably is pronounced Telefono, but because I live in Spain, I keep seeing this word, and I'm there going, no, I will not let me not say Telefono. That's how I, that's how say, I always think of it too, as like, I, as if it's a Spanish word. To, yeah. yeah, I had to think very consciously to say Telefono, because I want to say Telefono also. Um, <laughs> I've heard Brit say the name of the album, so I know yeah. it's pronounced that way. And it's, yeah. it's probably a, a weird Tex-Mex kind of thing. <laughs> and so they're from, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, live, I spent a few years living in California, but all I really know about Texas is um, Austin is the cool place and there's nothing else. Exactly. Is that about right? <laughs> that about sums it up. Austin is green and cool. And the, the motto of the city is keep Austin weird. Isn't that also <laughs> Portland? Doesn't Portland have the same? They might. <laughs> I mean, Austin is pretty much like the Portland of Texas and it really and vice is. versa. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 a it's a, an oasis of of tolerance and cool, surrounded by a whole lot of uh, red hatred and nothingness. We're gonna um, get a lot of uh, Texas fans. <laughs> well, probably. To be honest, probably not. <laughs> so, Telefono came out in '96. Um, I've sort of mentioned before on this pod that particularly from the UK anyway, it seemed like America had gone to sleep rock-wise or guitar-wise sort of mid-90s and sort of woke up again 
or at least woke up again on the international stage towards the turn of the millennium. Um, Telefono, I don't think, made any splash over this side of the pond. Um, Emily, was this one of the ones... Was, was, was this college? No, college for you was afterwards. So when were you aware of Telefono? I, I actually didn't listen to it until somewhat later. Um, I, yeah, it's, this isn't one of the albums that I really listened to much at the time when I was listening to a bit more Spoon, but I kind of went back to it later on. And I and I really I really liked it a lot, actually. I think in part because it um, sounds a lot like the Pixies. Yeah, they they definitely sound a lot like the Pixies there. And, and Britt Daniel has never shied away from from saying so. And I think the fact that they've got uh, uh, Andy playing bass and providing harmonies on some songs, mm-hmm. so there's a, a female voice in there, uh, makes it even sound more like the Pixies. Um, and, yeah, and also, I mean, for me, this is not one of my favorite um, Spoon albums, or it's at least one I, I go back to almost the least. Um, Brit's voice sounds wrong to me. I don't know why. It sounds like he's trying to be Black Francis. He's trying to scream a bit more than he does in later albums. Um, I, I, I know that bands change and bands evolve. Um, for me, this seems too derivative uh, as compared to, to, to later stuff. And like Emily, I mean, I went back to this after getting into them significantly later. Um, Nick, now I know yeah. from various WhatsApp, WhatsApp messages, um, you found some of this tedious, tortuous. Uh, not tortuous. No, 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 no. <laughs> the thing is, it, I, the thing I struggle with is that I, I'm, I'm trying hard to like them, and I don't dislike them. I just don't go that extra mile with a band where you kind of, you know, go to understanding what the fans like, you being able to sort of feel that. Um, I mean, I understand it at a kind of objective level because I've read a lot about them now, and I can see. I can understand all the kind of interesting stuff they're doing in the studio and stuff, but just they don't click for me. So this first one obviously doesn't sound like the later Spoon sound. Or, um, I can, I, my notes are basically just, it's just a list of other bands. <laughs> and uh, I don't think it's even fair to, to read them out. But, but I kind of had the same sort of reaction to it as to other records in that I kind of enjoyed the uh, kind of late 90s old rock sound. But I don't get on with Britt Daniels' voice, even if he's singing differently here. And again, I don't, I don't dislike it, but I do think that that for me is the missing link. Okay, okay, uh, I can see that. I mean, what we'll we'll get onto what I love about the band later on, and what I love about the band is nowhere to be found on this album. Okay. Um, for me, every album that's good. For me, every single Spoon album, the first time I've heard any single one, it's been like, huh, well, that's not, okay. And then by the sixth or seventh listen, I'm like, oh, no, I was totally wrong. This is amazing. And all the little mm-hmm. hooks and everything have borrowed their way into my head. Yeah. This album's never done that for me. I sort of, It's sort of a pre-Spoon album, I guess, for me. Um, so, Emily, I know that you, you had a bit of nostalgia, like early 90s sort of indie rock you've been on before, uh, mentioned Nirvana and the sort of MTV live unplugged sessions, et cetera, et cetera. Did this fit into your 90s wheelhouse? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think it, it uh, I wasn't aware of it contemporaneously with that at the time, you know, like this wasn't something I wasn't, I wasn't cool enough at the time to, to, to you know, know about the first. What were you listening to in 96? Uh, oh God, I don't even, I, 
I don't know. I was I was very young. Let's not go too too far too deep okay. into that. I was I was still in high school in '96, so I feel I can be forgiven some not super not super cool musical days. But I do really. I I just want to say I maybe I I didn't mean when I said like oh I like it. It sounds like the Pixies. I didn't mean that dismissively. I actually really do like the first album. Um, and I mean to me like there I absolutely hear this kind of other like early 90s or mid 90s um kind of musical touchstones um but it still sounds different enough to me and I think it was also just kind of a it was a nice surprise going back and listening to this later on after being much more familiar with different periods of the band's sound like oh like I didn't I didn't know they ever sounded quite like this and since on some later albums um you know sometimes they get a little too kind of perfectly produced to me. So I, it was actually kind of welcome to me, this slightly kind of rockier, um, rougher sound I really liked to hear from them. Yeah, okay, that, 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 that doesn't make sense, especially with the comment about how they do get very uh, perfectly produced later on. Uh, and I could see how that could be, sometimes you want a bit of a, a shambolic, ramshackled, janky, jangly guitar thrown in. Um, Bill, um, you look like you wanted to say something. You were leaning forward towards the microphone, so I'm just going to throw it over, back over to you. Well, this album is never one that I've really gravitated to either. I haven't listened to it nearly as much as probably anything else in their catalog. But when I re-listened to it this time, uh, I noticed some things that hadn't really I, I hadn't really seized onto before, like the way that so many of these songs are structured very unpredictably. You don't know exactly... Uh, where they're going to go based on where they've started or what they've already done, which I found really exciting on this last listen. And the other thing I really I noticed was the way they were throwing in a lot of strange key signatures or uh, time signatures and so forth, like not turning off. Suddenly it goes into five, four in in some places. And they were doing very interesting little things that I just hadn't noticed before. Uh, on earlier listens to the album that made me like it more, but still um, I'm not so much a fan of the, of the uh, Pixies wannabe sound uh, filtered through Nirvana. And maybe there's some wire in there also, Um, but their, their influences are, are great. They picked good influences, um, but this is not at the top of the heap, but not a throwaway album for me either anymore. Okay. So, well, what, that's probably a good time for us to move on. Um, in the in the musical introductions, I mentioned that they have a brief uh, release of a new EP. Basically, they, they moved to what? Electra? Um, can't get the Soft Effects EP and Series of Sneaks, their next album out in about 98. Uh, the new album seems to be a bit more angular, sort of stop, start, stop, start. It's, what, 33 minutes with 14 tracks, starting with Utilitarian um, and the very radio-friendly Caradio, um, because apparently Car Radio isn't how you pronounce Car Radio. Did, was this the album that made them? This album uh, made some of their reputation. Uh, they, they got a lot of press for having signed with Elektra and getting on board there, but... Like with a lot of bands that came out around this period, Electra didn't really support them as much as they could. I mean, Electra was kind of doing the same thing to to Nada Surf and some other uh, 
big indie bands at the time. Wait, wait, not not a surf. Were they the ones that had popular? Popular, yes. And they continued as a band after popular. Oh, in my head, yeah. They just not a surf uh, is still going and still putting out albums. I've <laughs> I've had dinner with with them before, which is oh. a whole different story. Um, so, 1998, um, Nilesa, lots of sort of all very similar style uh, US uh, alt rock bands sort of starting to come out. Um, they've got this new album, they've signed to Electra. Um, you say that maybe, you know, um, they got, who was it, Lafitte? Ron Lafitte. Ron Lafitte, yes. who, who we might as well address now because he had such a big impact on them that they, well, they, they, they wrote songs about him. Uh, Ron Lafitte was their A&R guy? Yes, yeah, he was, he was their A&R guy. And he's the guy who actually lured Spoon away from Matador. Matador had uh, an option, uh, or Spoon had the option to sell their next album to Matador, but Lafitte made the case that they would be better off at Electra and promised them the world. Uh, <laughs> Britt says in the song, uh, the, the agony of defeat that really all he wanted was a copy of Garage Days Revisited by Metallica. <laughs> That's what he wanted out of the deal. Uh, I don't think he even got that. Uh, Lafitte started acting pretty squirrely after uh, the album came out. Uh, he probably knew for months ahead of time that he was heading out the door at Electra. He left and he abandoned Spoon and several other artists. Um, and uh, Electra ended up dropping Spoon and all these other bands who had they had promised the moon to. So how long so, after the release of this album did they then get dropped? I think it was within a year. It wasn't... It was the album a, a massive, was it a commercial flop at the time? Did that, that, that I don't know. I, I'm sure it did better than, uh, than Telefono did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't think it was, it was such a, a disaster, but I think Electra just didn't know, wasn't really interested in having all these bands, uh, especially once Lafitte was gone. And so they just dropped them all. And, and Spoon really practically went back to busking at that point. Um, wow. The band I seemed did, like they were dead. Didn't Brit go and get a job in advertising? Or no, he worked, at, or? Uh, he, he worked at a city bank. I don't know exactly what he did there, but he, he moved to New York and got a job. Wow. <laughs> I think there's, a, there's an apocryphal story that one of the members of Sleater Kinney went into a city bank and saw him there and was like, what are you doing? Hi, I'm Brit. How can I help you with your savings and mortgage? Yeah. Um, Emily, um, what, or okay. So what order did you come to spoon? Um, I arrived much later and worked my way back. You've already said you worked back, but back from where? I mean, I think this is, so this is one of the ones, even though this, this came out, I didn't listen to this right when it came out, but a few years later, I heard this one. And I, this is, to me, kind of in, in in my mind, this is like the beginning of sort of what Spoon sounds like, even though I know they'll kind of continue to go more in that sort of minimalist vein the next few albums. But I, I like this one a lot. And I also, um, I like actually the, what's the EP that came out right before this? The Soft, Soft Effects. Effects. That first um, 
track on soft effects was that mountain to sound i just i like i love that one like i love like the like the super this is, again you can tell what part of spoon i like better but i love the like the like the super crunchy repetitive guitar thing on that and then it goes into these weird sort of counterintuitive chord changes um so yeah i like this this is kind of the part of spoon that i tend to like the best yeah there's a, there's a there's a song later on on i think kill the moonlight where Brit actually name checks Mountain to Sound. Mm. I was listening to Mountain to Sound. The way it's panned is cool. He's <laughs> right. He's right about that. That is very meta. Um, <laughs> Nick, I mean, for me, this is a perfect album of two minute, two minute 54 uh, jangly indie, indie rock songs. Um, it's not who Spoon become. And it's not necessarily the spoon I love, but it is definitely going in that direction. Um, where's your well monitor on it's, it's uh, a it, series of sneaks? It's up a little. I'm not entirely sure of the uh, vocabulary of the well monitor yet, so I'm, I'm sort of struggling to talk about it in in, in terms of well. But um, is more well a good thing? Sure. There, there was some well. I I, I I whelmed a bit. I don't know. Um, so. So no, this one actually got quite a few listens, and um, I think "30 Gallon Tank" maybe one of my favourite Spoon songs. Really love that. Uh, yeah, love the love the riff and the, what the the drums and the guitars are doing together in that. Just it's just very interesting. I'm still, um, I guess, erring very much towards underwhelmed with the vocals, and that's that's still my my barrier. But there's there's stuff going on in this album that that I like, and it did grow on me with the repeated listens. Uh, "Staring at the Board" is also a track I liked. Um, it was sort of has a slightly more lo-fi sound to it, which again is not something you associate with Spoon. I don't know. I mean, some of the albums are very, I mean, they are very stripped down, but then yeah. as Emily's already alluded to later on, everything is, is produced to the point of exactly how they want it. There's nothing sloppy. Um, quickly on the voice. Um, for me, sometimes it sounds like Brit is singing in a faux British accent. I've noticed I, that, I, I, but it, I, I, that, that in itself I don't think is what bothers me, but I've definitely noticed it. Um, is, is this just my ear? I, I want to ask the Americans in the room, which is half of us. Um, does he sound British? Does Brip sound British to you? That's not a really good question. He, not, not really to me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he listened to so much Julian Cope that he was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of internalized that. But I've always found it strange that uh, more bands from the UK don't sound so British to me when I hear them singing. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they want to sound American. Yeah, I, I think I think there's also it, it's some accents. Some accents mm. are very strong and stay. Oh, it's uh, it's hard to mistake Oasis, for instance. Mm-hmm. Oasis, yeah. uh, Arctic Monkeys. I uh, think like you can listen. And you go, oh yeah, that's a that's a northern voice. Um, uh, but then some of it is just yeah. I mean, you don't necessarily want every English band to go, all right, there, we're singing about stuff. Because <laughs> it would just be awful. Um, we, are, we are going down a route. So Lafitte left them. They were kicked off Electra. Um, Britt went to work to the bank. And then they just decided to give it one more go. How did they get back in the studio? Who signed them, uh, Bill? Uh th- Eventually, they, they weren't signed initially. They wanted, they, they were hungry to keep making music. Um, 
And after licking their wounds for a little while, they pulled themselves together and they they put out this uh, double single under the title "The Agony of Lafitte." Uh, and both this both the songs on this single name check Lafitte in the titles. It's Agony of Lafitte and Lafitte Don't Fail Me Now. And they're the first one is pretty mournful. I think it, it's just like we're so sad that you screwed us over. How could you do this? And the second one is is just really nasty <laughs> and and mean. And that really uh that made their reputation. The fact that they were willing to do such a public screw you to Electra Records and put out this single and and start over again. Uh, by the way, they put this single out on uh, Connor Oberst's label. And that got them a whole lot of, of fans who started coming out to the shows. Um, the the buzz started building. Was So was this the time, jumping out of that, was this around the time that the, the, there was the home EP? Because there was... But he with Connor and Brit. That came a few years later, I think okay. 2004, maybe. Uh, yeah, n- no, this hadn't this hadn't happened yet. But um, Spoon started uh, uh, recording the new album entirely on their own. That uh, they produced it with uh, Mike McCarthy, but uh, Brit was becoming more interested in in. Uh, adding more instruments to his sonic palette and sort of turning to a more classic songwriting structure. And Jim Eno was learning a lot more about music production. And together, the two of them uh, were able to really reconfigure the Spoon sound. And from what I understand, also, they weren't just uh, recording in, you know, people's basement studios Brit would go into the University of Texas into uh, the music practice rooms and record on pianos and just, you know, grab sounds wherever he could. And through all that, they put together Girls Can Tell and then started shopping the album around. And that's when Merge Records picked them up. Okay, yeah, that's that's a very weird way for a semi-established band to actually be doing it, to literally going around with something on what so 2000 something on mini disc uh to Probably. go and get, get get somebody to sign them um emily you mentioned to me previously before this this part that uh this is one of your favorites or one of the ones you listen to the most is that correct yeah i mean i, I would say i say yeah this and the the one before and after it are probably the ones that i've listened to the most yeah um, yeah. So, so is this your entry point here? I, I, I'm going to ask this every album too. So yes. Till we get there. Right. No. So, so my actual entry point is is the next one actually. But this, ah. you know, this had come out just a little bit before, so it was still very much. Um, yeah, it was one of the ones that I that I listened to a lot at the point in my my life where I was <laughs> listening to a lot of Spoon. Um, yeah, I mean, I I I like this one too. Um, I like the opener a lot. That um, that everything hits at once. It's it's you know the the beginning of them being it's a less of the straightforward kind of rock sound and you can hear them going into a more pop direction but it's it's a really good breakup song i think <laughs> um i like a good breakup song um it i will say this album does also have possibly one of my my most disliked spoon songs on it as well and <laughs> um this is the one that has um has fitted shirt on it is that right Bill's look of, of stunned 
I was going to, I was about to say stunned disbelief, but then as I looked over on Zoom, I saw the name Bill Shun, and my, my brain went, shunned? No, no, what's his <laughs> name? Ah, stunned. Bill stunned disbelief. <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I agree with you on, on that song, Emily, but also I find this album just to be a bore fest. I love <laughs> this band and this album. I listen to it and it disappeared. And I go, oh, I can't remember it. Nothing. It's never, ever, ever got me. And I think it's the problem with the opening track mm. because every other album has this, an opening track that's quite loud and brash and gets yeah. in your face a little bit. Yeah. And I, I, I think that this is more subtle and a bit more mature. It's, it's kind of moody, yeah, but it's not yeah, It's, it's it, not as brash. I agree with you about that. Exactly. Yeah. And it just never gets me. I mean, this, this and Telefono are the two albums I never listened to. Um, like ever, which is odd because I listen to a lot of Spoon. Um, Bill, you've heard you've heard two people diss certain <laughs> things on this album. Uh, your jaw dropped once and your eyebrows raised the second time. Uh, Don't do both at once. Your face will this, rip. <laughs> I this album, like this, one. this this album does rubbery things to my face. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I love this album. It's not my favorite Spoon album. I don't think it's their best album. Uh, and like Emily, I came to them probably around Kill the Moonlight the first time, but working my way back to this one, I love the opening track and uh, I just am always taken in by the, the different varieties of rhythm they're able to get out of just a, a small set of instruments on every song. Um, everything hits at once is is fantastic in my opinion. And I love the fitted shirt because I think this whole album is uh sort of a it's a it's a throwback nostalgic album you can even hear some some r&b in there but you know fitted shirt is nostalgia for this imagined time when things used to be made better than they are now and brit and jim have made a better album than they than they had before they're they're putting their money where their mouth is uh what are some of the other al- uh, songs I love on this? Chicago at Night, I think, is a is a terrific um, ender to the album as well. And there's a really, I, I didn't even realize until recently what 10.20 a.m. was about, but th- that was the, the time of day when Britt's grandfather died. And that song's all about, you know, carrying his his casket to the to the graveyard. And it's got really interesting, sad uh, flute sounds, kind of like something out of, on the hill i just i think the way they completely revamped their sound well you can still see it in the continuum with what came before but it's very impressive to me every time i hear it i i think that that is a thing that a motive that will come back to time time again that every album sounds like spoon but doesn't sound like spoon per se and this is definitely a step away from that last album it is more mature it is more poppy there is a lot there's a lot more going on um, but like how uh, Emily missed the, the janky, janky guitars from before, I really missed them moving into this album. Um, Nick, where, where, where are you on this one? I, I actually kind of like this one. and um... <laughs> I knew you would! <laughs> <laughs> Ever the contrarian. But no, but, I, but I, actually, um, I'm going to make the third vote for uh, Everything Hits at Once. I think that's a great tune. That's one of the ones that kind of really stood out to me and also... Again, with repeat listens, I was like, See, actually, this one's pretty good. I like this one. But also, in, in my notes, <laughs> um, I, I also noted Take the Fifth, 
And the only reason I noted that is because I was cooking at the time and I had a little dance and I thought it'd be remiss of me not to mention it. <laughs> Spoon made me dance, but it was that's that. A, so take, take the fifth. That's a stomper. Yeah, yeah. I had a little, little kitchen shimmy to that. Yeah. That, and that's just always a vote in a favor of any album, really. Yeah, oh, those, totally. those bass country uh, piano notes on that song, I love it. Um, okay, so so we've got this more um, mature album. It's definitely slicker. They're learning how to make a sound, and they are becoming a band different from their peers, at least. Um, for me, moving on to the next album, Kill the Moonlight. Kill the Moonlight is where this newfound maturity and uh, production skill uh, revisits sounds from maybe um, a series of sneaks brings back a sort of something uh, quirky and original. Um, from We've got an opening track that barely has any drums. We've got some beatboxing. We've got uh, Brit singing to himself and back and call and repeat throughout this album. Um, Kill the Moonlight is when modern day Spoon turn up, right? I mean, this is when they become something. The previous album was that sort of, oh, we're doing something new, but this is when they finally arrived. Emily, this, this, wait, 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 wait. Was this, was this when you came in? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so how was it, was it, you're, you're at college, it, was it on the radio? Was it at, at, at college parties? I'm no. trying to remember what American college looks like. <laughs> Uh, I mean, as a general rule, the music, at least at the college I went to, that was played at, at college parties was really terrible music. But um, the, I mean, I heard this, yeah, not on the radio or anything like that. Is uh, like it was like through friends. Like you would have a friend who put something on like a, a mixtape or a mix CD for you or something like that, or you hear it when you go over to the, their apartment for drinks or something like that. Um, and then I think I got a copy of it, and it's just I remember. It's a, I think you can think of it as a really good headphones album, actually, because it's it is the first of those really kind of just super immaculately produced all those like little sounds that are, are just perfectly placed yeah. at the right. I think that's spot. an excellent point. I think I find Spoon to be a headphones band, mm-hmm. like just in general, the amount of times I go, oh, well, that's clever, which mm-hmm. I know isn't the the joy that you necessarily want from music. You want it to make well, you dance. It depends. Like it dep- I, I mean, like it depends. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they're constantly surprising you by putting little sounds in and playing playing verses differently each time they do it. Yeah, there's there's a, a track in a, a couple of albums that every time I listen to it, I I my brain goes, "Oh, you're still listening to piano," but in reality, the piano stopped about thirty seconds ago, but the the melody is is, is still going on. Um, so we've got um the way we get by. We've got Jonathan Fisk here. Uh, Jonathan Fisk, a, a song about a school bully who has been, who who used to bully Brit at school, but then now comes to Spoon gigs, and Brit finds out and writes his song about Jonathan Fisk, as, and as Brit has never sounded more Elvis Costello in anything else he, he's done. That, he, that tell, story, he, right, Bill? he tells me he counts my teeth every night. <laughs> I love that line from the song. It's a good line. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a true story, as far as I know. Um, so we've got that. We've also got Stay Don't Go, which is... Go on, sing it. The, sing it. No. <laughs> but it's the first time, it's the first, you, you've got the beatboxing, you've got Brit playing with his voice 
And you've got a few moments on this album where they're genuinely experimental, but without being, ooh, we're experimental. It's, yeah. oh, this is some, this is a pop song, but a pop song that has been put in a blender. Yeah, and he's singing in falsetto on that song too. And it, and it doesn't sound unnatural, which it kind of does in other places earlier when he goes into that higher register. But this, he, he's got it nailed on this one. Definitely. Um, favorite songs, Emily? Which- I, I mean, I, I feel like this is not a, I don't know if, I think this is not an obvious choice, but I, my favorite song on this and always at the time, my favorite Spoon song was Paper Tiger, actually. Um, which, which along those lines of like it being like sort of sneakily experimental, you know, it's got a lot, there's so much open space in that song. There's like, there's a lot of silence between the different bars. And I just, it's kind of a, like, you know, echoey. And I, I like that one a lot. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, sometimes they, they, they are able to have songs sound either very dense, um, and intricate or totally open and minimalist and stripped down and they are very good at using headphones or production to mm-hmm. give you certain senses of different types of space. Uh, for me, this is, yeah, this is when Spoon becomes Spoon. Nick, you liked the last one? Well, I mean, first listen, it made almost no impression at all. And this is the problem I have with, with Spoon Records where I listen to it and then afterwards you ask me about it and I'm like, I kind of enjoyed it while it was playing, but I, it's gone. It's, it's just dissipated into the air. But, you know, I, I tried to give all these less records a few listens where I could because I do feel that they're, they're growers. And if I just had one spoon record to spend the time with, I could probably get there given maybe 30 listens. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I, I liked the way we get by on this. And it always seemed to be like either the opening track or the second track. So I don't, I don't know if that's because they front load their albums or I just get bored and stop paying attention. <laughs> No, I think they def- I think they def- there's a big choice with what the opener is. I mean, you go through almost all the albums and the opener is a, is a yeah. statement track um, that usually sort of, it, it's, it grabs your attention, mm-hmm. um, which is why, like I said, I, I'm, I don't know, I never sort of warmed to the previous one. I think this is great. Um, took me a while to warm to this album because I was still working back um, and I found it a bit underdeveloped at times the first few times I listened to it and then I realized I was wrong I just hadn't been listening right (laughs) or correctly Bill yeah this is this is one of my favorite Spoon albums and this is where I came in as well I was hearing Spoon on uh, mix CDs that I was getting from friends I belonged to this uh, CD mix of the month club and it was around 2004 I started hearing tracks from Spoon and I'd, I'd heard the name before but never really heard it before and uh, the way we get by is one of those tracks that really grabbed me and made me want to uh, find out more about this band. And I really love Small Stakes also on this album. Uh, Stay Don't Go is obviously great. We talked about that. Um, yeah. And, and I like Paper Tiger, too. Those are some of the high points for me on this album. Yeah, I think definitely. Yeah. I mean, this was still not even my entry point. I, I, I hadn't even heard of Spoon by this point. They were, they were one of those bands that took a while to properly make it over. And it was only really with... It, it was probably websites like Annoyingly Pitchfork or Stereo Gum actually being able to, to discover and read about bands, particularly bands who were getting consistently... Uh, high review scores or being well received 
Um, so I'm not even, I don't even turn up at Gimme Fiction. I turn up at Gaga, 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 all the guys. I turn up <laughs> in two albums. I turn up in two albums time. However, I do know that they, they, they broke into the UK psyche a little bit with Gimme Fiction and particularly moving on to this with obviously I turn my camera on, which is like nothing they've done before, except you can see precursors of that with the falsetto, but it's falsetto with, uh, I think it was, was Jim Eno said, let's do a bit of disco funk in there. And they went, yeah, sure, why not? This will work. Uh, and that, I, that was possibly the first time I heard them, although it didn't really stick with me at the time. Um, what year are we talking about with Gimme Fiction, Bill? That's 2005. Okay, so pretty close. It's... Yeah, it's been what? It's been actually three years since Kill the Moonlight. I'm not sure everything they were doing during that period. Maybe a lot of touring. When was the movie? Oh, it's probably a little later. When was the movie adaptation? No, this... no, no. Uh, Stranger than Fiction. Stranger than Fiction. Sorry, uh, adaptation yeah. was a Nick Cage. Stranger than Fiction, was it now? Because a lot of the tracks uh, from no, this album appear on that as they basically two, the soundtrack. 2006. Okay, so... Yeah, a little so just after Gimme Fiction. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So they did this album, and then they, they got to do a soundtrack, which is nice, um, although they could have done a bit more with it. But Gimme Fiction, great. Bangs, we've got Sister Jack, we've got um, I Summon You, which I believe is Brit's favourite track. He keeps referring to that as the best thing he's ever he's ever written. Emily, you're now a Spoon fan. You you, you fell for them in the in the previous album. The new album's out. You know who they are. You're putting it on CDs for other people. Um, how did this album hit you? Well, I, I, I guess I, I would I would put it in kind of two parts because I think I, I think I heard um, I, I heard I turned my camera on first. Um, I don't know if it was it was issues as like a single first or not. I'm not sure what the sequencing was, but I definitely heard that before I heard the rest of the album. And I remember being just like, like, whoa, this is a spoon song. Like, you know, like they're doing this sort of, you know, this disco sound. It, it was not how I expected them to sound at all, but it was so, um, it seemed like it was such a perfect track. You know, it's very like tight and it's very sexy in like a way that I don't really, didn't really think of spoon as being sexy <laughs> necessarily. Oh, they could do sexy. Although it always feels a bit weird, but they definitely they can definitely do. Yeah, and it's it, it's such a great song. The thing is, for me, then when I heard the actual album, the full album, it, it was almost a little bit of a disappointment for me because that 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 lead single was just so good, and it was kind of I felt a little underwhelmed by the rest of the album. There's, I mean, there's good songs on there, definitely. I mean, they can write a good pop song, but I, to me, in all honesty, as much as I love, I turn my camera on. Um, this album was sort of the beginning of me starting to fall away from them a little bit. Okay, okay, I can, I can get that. Mm. Um, I also find this album very front heavy. Mm. Uh, I, I put it, I start it off more often than I finish it. Um, Bill, um, you said that this was sort of this is your your run of favorite Spoon albums. This, this is include? yeah. The uh, my ranking changes all the time, but. This one's usually up there, and right now I think it's my favorite Spoon album. I think it, Gimme Fiction, it's it's in the title. I think it creates this whole little alternate universe of its own, and I like the the world of this album. You know, they've they they went down 
to basics on Kill the Moonlight. And here they're starting to build their sound back up and making it a little more complex again. Um, but that's mirrored by this really uh, complex melding of the music and, and the lyrics where you got uh, songs like Beast and Dragon Adored right out, right out of the gate put you in kind of a, an apocalyptic mood because of the, the references to the book of revelations there. And then the two sides of Monsieur Valentine takes you into this strange alternate universe where there's a play called the stranger dance and Brit wants to, wants to play the lead. And even as he's describing what happens in the play, um, the roles keep changing by the end. He he's, uh, He's making love to the Duke and sword fighting with the queen. And it's just, I find this, this whole album sort of off kilter like that. And I really like the way that um, these songs, uh, most of them sort of illustrate uh, some kind of emotional distance. Like, especially I, I turn my camera on, I think is the, is the really um, the most, straightforward example of that but in every song here as far as i can tell um brit is keeping himself at some kind of a remove from whoever he's talking to or or who he loves or even from himself there's just so much uh disconnect in this album in in the best sense of of the word it's all about disconnection and uh i think i just think this is a fantastic album and i i do keep coming back to it because it it keeps sounding a little different to me every time i listen to it okay no i, I can see that i mean for me it was definitely it's definitely their first dab at being surreal um sometimes i haven't always been able to to decipher what brit is saying or, or, or when he's when he's singing and the two sides of michelle valentine I, I gave up trying after a while i was like Something about it? No, no, no idea. I really don't know what, what is going on now. Um, but yeah, they're definitely trying some, to, some more interesting things. Uh, I like Sister Jack, um, but it's a bit classic pop. My mathematical mind um, is, is great piano rock. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Nick, how are you on piano rock? <laughs> Depends what you're doing with the piano, I guess. Um, <laughs> but my notes literally just say Sister Jack, and then there's a little tick, which must have meant I liked it. But Did you don't do ask me to sing it. I don't think so. I don't think. I think I'd have made a note of that. I was thought. I I I would have had you down as a t I turned my camera on. I did like um, that actually. I heard this. that. You see, I heard that in isolation um, elsewhere, not not in the album, and, and enjoyed it more. And that I think is quite telling for me with Spoon that I think a lot of the tracks I kind of like on their own, but I struggle with whole albums of them. But and I'm still trying to figure out why that is. I don't know. I if don't I know why that if is. I, if I can't work not, it out by the end of this podcast, I'm probably going to give up. I, I, it's not like the albums are long. I mean, most albums no, it's not a length uh, thing. No. Under forty minutes. Yeah. You know, no songs are no. They, they don't really have seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve minute uh, epics. It's generally oh, this one's five minutes. Oh my god, that was an outlier. Mm -hmm. uh, they, their songs turn up. Don't really overstay their welcome usually do something quite interesting. Um, I personally think Kill the Moonlight, I prefer to Gimme Fiction, um, but it can, it can fluctuate. 
Now, what doesn't fluctuate is how awesome and amazing Gar 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 is it five guards or five, four it's guards? Five. Five guards. Gar to, to the power of five um, is because that's my entry point, um, which was the point I stopped um, ignoring this this well reviewed band from America and actually tried to give them a listen. And the first time I heard Gar 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 Gar, gar um, I went, yeah, it's all right. And then the second time, I got a bit more. And by about four or five or six or seven, I, I thought it was amazing. It was astounding, back to back, all the time. Um, from, the, from, from the opener to, to the closer, um, I don't think there's a, a single track on this album that isn't exceptional. Um, it's, it's pop. It's a pop album. It's, it's, it does some interesting things. Um, don't Make Me a Target is a phenomenal way to start an album although i can't listen to that song without thinking of the adam buxton fan video um bill emily if you've never seen it there's a there's a comedian in england called called um called adam buxton he has a podcast uh, he's a massive 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 spoon fan and he basically has this video of him talking to himself um and he's at a desk making a, a target, a paper target. And then he's standing there talking to himself, basically going, no, 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 don't make me a target. And this is it's an entire three-minute love uh, love letter to, to, to this band. And I can't listen to that song without thinking of that video. If you're listening now, Adam Buxton, uh, don't make me a target. Uh, you can thank me later. Um, I also think the album ends amazingly, although it's I've, I've tried not to think what humanize the vacuum means. For many a year, Bill, don't tell me. But do you know where Dorian's is? Dorian's is is a real bar. I've never been there. I haven't seen it, uh, but I, I I do know that it's a real place. Um, so this album, um, where is it for you? I mean, follow. I think following uh, Give Me Fiction. I think they do more, but they also do less. I think it's pop song after pop song after pop song. Yeah. Uh, I I do love this album, and unfortunately, it's one I don't go back and listen to enough. Probably because you know you know that thing where you've got a band, you love it, no one else really knows about them, and then all of a sudden they blow up huge. And in your mind, that album becomes the sellout album, and I, it, that's not really the case with Spoon. And this really is start to finish a, like a perfect album. But I think. For some reason, I dock it a couple of points in my mind just because of how popular it was. You know, when uh, uh, when the underdog started playing in every coffee shop and restaurant and airport lounge in the world, I, I loved it at first. And then I got so sick of hearing that song and those mariachi horns. <laughs> I just I, if I put it on right now, though, I would be very happy and I would love it. This really is a, a good album. Um, and I think it also shows some of Spoon's generosity because they've always loved doing covers of their friends' band's songs. And they had toured with a band called The Natural History who had a song called Don't You Ever. And Britt took that, polished it up, reworked the lyrics a little bit, and it became one of Spoon's biggest hits. And this band, uh, The Natural History, that had already broken up by the time this song came out, they're now getting probably massive residuals uh, off of this favor that Brit did them. And, and, and Brit really did improve their song and make it something 
really special. Um, Emily, um, so we've talked before about the sort of the shonky guitar pixie sounding uh, spoon and the sort of more mature pop songs. Um, and then I think that by this point, they're doing both of those things. And I think they're doing them exceptionally well. But it is also the album that suddenly got made them the band that was no longer cool to like. Um, were, 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 were they too cool? Were they no longer cool for you, Emily? Or? Oh, I mean, it's not, not that. It, um, I mean, I'm having trouble putting in my feelings about this into words because on the one hand, I feel like it's a totally, you know, it's a very solid pop album, you know, but there's something about it where I, I have trouble mustering as much enthusiasm for it as I feel like I should. Maybe I don't know. It's not, I don't. It, it becomes to me, for me, a little. I mean, they're still they're solid pop songs, but there's something just. It's a little too middle of the road for me. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't. I actually remember at the time when this came out. I think it was when they released it on CD. I think they did. It was an EP that it came with. Whatever that. Get nice. Is that what it was? Get called? nice. And I, so I, I think I bought it. I was still big enough, you know, I had enough goodwill towards food that I, I bought the CD right when it came out and I, and Get Nice came with it. And I, I remember actually liking some of the, like the weird demo-y almost sounding things that are on Get Nice better than I liked the actual proper album because I don't, I, I don't know, like it's, it's, I don't know if it's too, it's like too perfectly produced or it's, I don't know, something about it. I have a hard time feeling really enthusiastic about it. It is very shiny. Um, this yeah. is probably their shiniest album in terms of production, and the production is it, it's it's very well crafted. But it, it's very very for me. It's if somebody wanted to craft a Hall and Oates album, um, this would be Spoon's Hall and Oates album. Which I don't mean dismissively because I love this album, mm. uh, but I totally get how it can be. It, it lacks edge. Yeah, in a sense, like there's not. That's what I feel like I'm just uh, I'm not being articulate about this at all. But there's like there's nothing wrong with it necessarily. But it 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 doesn't have I don't know if it's like lacking edge or just for me it doesn't have that extra something to it. Yeah, something to, something that that makes it stand out from from the mm -hmm. crowd. Um, Nick, I'm I'm, ass I'm assuming you're gonna you're 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 well monitor didn't peak too much with this one. Actually, I mean I I made quite a few notes, which is a good sign I think compared to some of the others. But um, yeah, I I don't know I. I, I... I think I think this sound is probably feels like for me the archetypal spoon sound. If you wanted to do a pastiche of a spoon song, you'd probably take "Don't Make Me a Target" as your as your template. I think, but um, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we could cut that into I, I, I the trailer a was, million times. Did um, Underdog get a lot of airplay in the UK? Because Spoon is a band like I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of them at all, but maybe some of it was going in at some level, because it sounds to me very much like the mid-noughties indie sound. And it's think, probably the brass. I think probably in the fact that I know that Six Music, BBC Six Music, um, so I was listening to it quite a lot of the time, and yeah. bands like Paul, Wolf Parade, Arctic, uh, Arcade Fire, Spoon, they were all getting a lot of, of, of airplay. Yeah, and that's probably and, the time in my life when I listened to the most Six Music, so it must have gone in at some level. <laughs> At, at some level. Um, okay, so um, we're going to move on um, from Ga 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 to an album that was oddly received at the time, um, but I think might be one of their best albums, uh, Transference. Um, Bill, before we, we, we dive into this, um, is my brain playing tricks on me? In my head, 
I heard a story that for one of the tracks, they wanted a sound of a piano being played in a swimming pool. So they recorded a piano being played in a swimming pool. Is my brain just <laughs> lying to me here? I hope that story's true. I've never heard it before, but I, I need to I know think they now. wanted the echo of an empty swimming pool. And so the only way they could get that was to... Oh, you didn't say it was empty. I'm disappointed now. Empty swimming pool, <laughs> tiles, old piano. They wheeled it down. They plopped it in the middle, played the piano. They went, yeah, that's the sound we want. Wow. Um, which is the sort of level of detail uh, that, that Brit likes. Um, transference. Yeah. Um, do you think people didn't like it as much because it wasn't... Ga, 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 ga. I'm, no? I'm sure that was the case. And I think they deliberately made an album that was not ga, 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 ga. In fact, when we talk about Spoon sounding so polished, I mean, there are a lot of polished tracks on Transference, but there are also several tracks that sound like they're demos. I mean, I think this album opens up sounding like a demo album. That, that The very first track, uh, Before Destruction, uh, has sort of a lo-fi sound to it, which is a real contrast with ga 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 ga. And uh, but this album's got some real bangers on it too, like uh, "Written in Reverse" and "Mystery Zone." I, I love both those songs. Um, but there's something really unsettling in this album about a lot of the juxtapositions between uh, lo-fi stuff really slickly polished stuff. And then they do things like mystery zone cuts off right in the middle of a phrase and leaves you feeling very like it's left you in the mystery zone. Um, and I just, I like this album a lot. I might admire it more than I, I like it because it's, it can be a challenging listen. Um, but then weirdly in the middle of it, it's got that really, sweet lullaby goodnight laura where you know brit is telling someone else it's going to be okay but most of the rest of the album makes it sound like brit doesn't think anything besides that is going to be okay yeah it's, it's, it's definitely it sounds like an album an album of when you get bands who are traditionally pop which spoon obviously aren't and then they have their experimental album when they go this is our pet sounds um it sounds like that's the album. This is the album that band would have would have made. Um, Nick, this is the more experimental one. I'm going to tentatively. I'm going to tentatively declare this my favourite Spoon album, but 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 working that out is still a work in progress that may get abandoned. <laughs> um, I think this is the album that uh, I think well, was it written in reverse got a lot of airplay. Okay. Um, in the UK at the time. I, I remember that one definitely because I was aware of Spoon now. I mean, I knew them and I, I was waiting for this album to come out for the first time. But it's interesting like, what Bill was saying about some of the tracks sounding more like demos because um, I'd been thinking about some of the other albums and that maybe I'd have liked to have heard the demo versions of these songs before they produced the shit out of them. And... Um, <laughs> And on this one, I hadn't noted that in particular as, as the thing that I was liking about it, but I'm wondering if maybe that is why, if there's a more lo-fi thing. If I sort of but feel but you, know, you know that the reason they sound like a lo-fi demo is because he's produced a shit yes, out I, of I, it. I get that. Exactly. But what I felt was that overall as an album, it had an, I liked the overall tone of it, but it was also kind of slightly less angular, that kind of very sparse sound that they do. It was less like that. And I'd never really, 
isolated that as the thing I don't like, but this seemed to have less of it, and I liked it more. So maybe I'm onto something here. Okay, um, Emily, you were losing your love for the for Spoon in the last 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 album, um, and in fact, even on Give Me Fiction, they were starting to go away from from the band that you liked at college. Um, did this do anything to bring you back? So this was this was actually the first Spoon album that I that I didn't buy. So and I never I would just sort of like had kind of I don't know I my taste had maybe shifted in terms of the things I was listening to at at this point um and I just never I never bothered <laughs> tracking this album down so I actually only heard it for the first time a few weeks ago um and I was I was I was pleasantly surprised actually I really I mean the the opening track that uh before destruction that the one that Bill described as sounding kind of like a demo I really liked a lot. There's nothing wrong actually. with that sound. <laughs> yeah, I mean the I mean there's this kind of like buzzy kind of synth noises and it's sort of this sort of like mysterious feel. I think I just I liked that it 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 didn't sound as much like what I'd come to start expecting a spoon album to sound like after Gimme Fiction and after Gaga Gaga Ga. Um so I yeah I overall I was I was I was pleasantly surprised. There are a few songs that seemed went on for a long time uh speaking of typically i think of spoon songs as being very you know disciplined in that way um and that was not universally true for this album but yeah overall it had some some good stuff on it yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely the album you make after you become globally famous when you go right um we're not sellouts we can still do we can still do stuff um i mean yeah for me it's, it's i think this, this is one of my favorite ones um i think basically from ga 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 onwards um, I listened to to the last one five albums quite quite uh, consistently. Um, yeah. this, with, sorry, oh, I'm sorry. No, I didn't no. know if we were moving on yet. But I, 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 was, I was I was literally about to ask you if there's anything. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. This will be really smooth. Um, so, Bill, is there anything <laughs> you want to cover before we move on? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I think one thing that that hangs over this album for me and makes me fond of it um, and puts me in a certain mindset is that uh, a few months before it came out. Uh, my son, who was 14 at the time, was visiting me in Chicago where I lived. Uh, it was over Christmas and, and New Year's. I took him to Milwaukee for New Year's Eve uh, to see Spoon play a New Year's Eve show that night. And we got a hotel where we were staying overnight and just all kinds of weird things happened that night. Um, the uh, we went out to get dinner, and it turns out in Wisconsin, minors can drink alcohol if uh, they are accompanied by a, a parent or guardian who give them permission. And uh, a server was bringing around New Year's Eve drinks and and had given one to my son before I could even say yes or no. <laughs> we had no idea what was what was going on uh, after the show. There were a bunch of kids having a New Year's Eve party in our hotel, and it turned into a giant riot that spilled out into the street, and we were trying to get into the hotel and get safe before the police showed up. And there were you know, people punching each other, and we saw a girl rip another girl's blouse right off. <laughs> and it was just a strange night, and that's the first night. Uh, the album was not out yet, but uh, I had just heard Mystery Zone for the first time, played by Spoon live on stage. And so that's the that is Mystery Zone night for me. Wow! Throwing my head now, that's the music video to Mystery Zone. Is <laughs> is the street riot, etc., uh, etc. Et that's a perfect way to move on. 
Um, but we're not. But we're not going to move on directly to the next Spoon album. We're going to take a slight detour. Um, about 15 minutes ago, I referenced a couple of American bands that were getting a lot of airplay in the early noughties, mid noughties, and one of them was Wolf Parade. Um, Wolf Parade are probably one of my favorite bands of this millennia, century, however we want to call the last 20 years. And Brit and Dan Buckner, Buckner, I can never pronounce it, got together for what is essentially a super group, we could say, called The Divine Fits, released one album, although apparently there's another one at some point in the future of, it sounds like Wolf Parade and it sounds like Spoon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe a little more techno-y Spoon than we'd gotten to that point, but, uh, but yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, um, it's kind of like a split EP at really, album length. It, it really is, and sometimes you list some of the tracks on, on a, a thing called Divine Fits. You go, "Oh, this is this is a spoon track," and then sometimes Dan starts growling and starts playing his guitars. I mean, it's it's not going to win people round to either band. I don't think it's the best Spoon album, and it's not the best Wolf Prey album, but it is a nice little um, diversion along the way. Uh, I'm going to say to you first, Nick, because I know that you sent me a message going, I think I've had an epiphany with Spoon. Oh, no, it's not a Spoon album. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> so so before I started listening to all the albums for this podcast, I kind of just you know made a list of all the albums and the years and stuff and thought, you know, I'm on top of this. I can do this. And I was listening to a, a thing called Divine Fits, thinking it was a Spoon album. And I genuinely thought, hey, this, I, this is the Spoon I could like. This is good. And I, that's when I wrote to Ewan and said, hey, I, I think I've cracked Spoon. And then, and then it turned out it wasn't a Spoon album. So, um, so, what, was was, it, so what about it did you, because to me. I guess, I think it was the electronic direction that I thought Spoon had gone in. Because <laughs> it was like, it almost always sounded like they were trying to do something like that, but as a guitar band. And suddenly they've moved, or hadn't, in, as, as it turned out, <laughs> towards a more fully electronic sound. And I was thinking, this is interesting. I like it. And I thought this fits Brit Daniel more and Daniels, whatever, Daniel. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was kind of disappointed when I realized that I was completely wrong. But also it was, it was uh, interesting that they covered the um, Shivers because um, it's a, an old, I mean, it's a song lots of bands have covered, but it's an old birthday party song uh, written by Roland S. Howard. And um, yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Uh, Emily, did you get a chance to listen to this one? Yes, I did. Again, I, I thought this was interesting because I, I um, based on what I knew about it beforehand, I was thinking of it sort of like, oh, maybe this is in line with some of the, the, the different parts of their sound that you hear on the next two albums after this. And I, spoiler, but I, I'm not a huge fan of the most recent two albums. Um, so I was like, I was like, I'm not going to like this. But actually, I quite liked this. I thought the Divine Fits album was really good. Like some of the things they're doing are not unlike some things that they'll do over the next few albums, but to me, it was more successful on this album, actually. Um, I think, wasn't it the keyboard player from Divine Fits who then got brought into Spoon, Bill? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so Divine Fits kind of spliced some DNA into Spoon. Alex Fischel, I think his name is, was the keyboard player from a band called Papa that uh, Wolf Parade had toured with. So he was part of Divine Fits and when it was time for a Brit to go back to Spoon, he took Alex Fischel with him. And, and that ended up infusing the next, the next 
couple albums, I think. I've just got this image now of like the band getting back together in the studio. Like, oh, how was your summer, Brit? Well, I was in another band and um, I brought us a new keyboard player. <laughs> okay, so that was a very, I just want a very brief diversion from the benefits. Just wanted to touch upon them. Um, and then we have They Want My Soul, which is big and epically produced again with big sounds. Um, I think this is a companion album to Ga 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 Ga, but without the pop. Um, I think it has uh, some of the uh, Don't Make Me a Target uh, bombast but then manage it for an entire album. Um, even to the point of I was, I, there's an excellent podcast out there called Song Exploder, and there's an episode about um, Inside Out and how uh, Jimmy and I was saying that basically Brit turned up one day and said, I want to do a Dr. Dre song. Let's do a Dr. Dre song. And when you listen to that song again now, it's like boom. There's a lot of that sort of sound of gangster rap, late 90s, West, sort of Dr. Dre production in there, and then they do something with it. Um, yeah, I think this I, is brilliant. I think Emily's wrong. Emily, you're off the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is brilliant. Yeah. Bill, Bill, why is this brilliant? Why am I right? <laughs> you're you're uh, absolutely right. It's a, it's a brilliant album. Uh, I think part of it is that, they were, is that Spoon's going for a much more dreamier sound here. And I think they've had elements of that all along with songs like, you know, uh, The Ghost of You Lingers or My Japanese Cigarette Case and things like that. But here they bring this this really uh, dreamy, almost psychedelic atmosphere into the album. Even the songs that uh, that are pretty rocking um, have some of that element in the lyrics, if, if nothing else. Um, and I think, you know, with the producers that they were working with, uh, Dave Fridman, who had done tons of stuff with uh, Flaming Lips, and and I don't know who else. There's a huge list of. Wait, of, is this is is who is? There's a Flaming Lips producer who makes everything sound like he just turns up all the dials. Is yeah, is it this exactly. One? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the all the reverb, all the all the everything. Just throw it all in there. Um, there was I can't remember who, there was a band Clap Your Hands Say Yeah and I think their second album was produced by him and it, it, it's like he just goes in the studio and goes huh I've got 21 things if I put them all up to 11 um, yeah, he's, there's no quiet bits it's just loud you're right He's. I'm looking at the list of other bands he's produced Clap Your Hands Say Yeah is on there uh, Mercury Rev Sparkle Horse MGMT Tame Impala Cafe Tacuba um, even Mogwai and and Low, I mean, you can hear yeah. all wall of sounds, all so that, a, yeah. The, the dynamic yeah. range. I think someone they recognised the uh, uh, Flaming Lips versus uh, the Pink Robot or Yoshimi. Y- Yoshimi versus the. Yeah. I I can't. Pink I can never think of the actual title because my friend used to sing Steve Bashimi. They won't believe me when that came <laughs> out, and so that's all I've yep. got. I've got Steve Bashimi battles the Pink Robots, but apparently yep. that's one of the yep. loudest albums ever made because everything's just turned up to twenty five. Yeah, yeah, and and I saw Flaming Lips on that tour, and it's just a huge arena filled with floating balloons that are. Uh, guided by i think i think that epitomizes this kind of sound it's just you know giant giant spheres wafting every way <laughs> through the air emily um do you like giant spheres wafting their way through the air uh, just uh, sometimes um <laughs> <laughs> it's a loaded sometimes, question 
Um, so you've already said that you didn't find this one particularly um, a good direction. Um, did you have a chance to revisit it? Is it why? Why? Yeah, I, mean, why? I, I, I should say I'm not saying it's uh, with any of these Spoon albums. I don't. I mean, none of them are are bad albums necessarily. Just I feel like with this this one, I think might be my least favorite possibly and I, I i think it's something about the production in part and it's the way that you know he, there was some of that kind of layering of more like keyboards or like electronic noises on the, the divine fits album as well that i i liked the way it was done better there than here there's something that is just feels flattened about the sound to me and it i don't know it it, it feels i hate to i hate to sound more pejorative than i mean it but it feels a little bland to me um, but I will say, even with with that um, kind of negative review, you know, even on albums that aren't my favorite of theirs, there's often at least like one really good pop song on it that I'm like, oh, well, I, I don't really need to listen to the album, but like, that sounds great. And for me on that one, um, it was Let Me Be Mine, which I thought was a great, like, again, like a great headphones, you have your headphones on and you have it turned up loud and you can kind of hear all the different, you know, ranges of the noise <laughs> that's coming at you. Um, so there, yeah, there's still like there were still high points, but overall, it to, to me it too easily kind of faded into the the background. This one, I think, I think you're right on, on the sound as well because obviously previously they'd, they'd be they'd be known for minimalism mm -hmm. and and taking three or four uh, sounds and making big uh, oddly big soundscapes with them. Whereas with this one, getting someone else in to help with the production, it does sound very big, even from the opening sort of. Um, drums from the rent I pay. Um, Nick, what do you, what do you notes say? <laughs> you, you really want to know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> I, made, I made no, no notes. I'd have written that down. No, it was see, all a dream. Is, yeah, no. This, so, so I think this has to be a, a dip in the wellometer. But I did listen to the uh, podcast you sent about Inside Out. Mm -hmm. And I found that really interesting. You see, so listening to a member of the band deconstruct it and then listening to how that came out and, and then understanding what was going on in it did make it really interesting, but in a very cold, dispassionate way for me. It's like, you know, okay, I can appreciate what they're doing and how they're bringing all these different sounds and, you know, the whole Dr. Dre thing. It's fascinating. But did I remember it when I listened to it the first time? Nope. All gone. I think that might be it as well. I mean, obviously, we've mentioned the production a lot, and it is a band whose production I I love the fact that they are producing things so well. Um, but that can also sometimes come across as sterile and a little bit medical. Yeah, um, that's that's just, kind of how I find it. Is yeah. a lot of the time I just want Spoon to just I don't know to do something a little more visceral and. and I, 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 oh, a couple of years ago, I went to see them live uh, in London. I, I, I live in Spain and I flew over to go and see them. And the entire gig, it felt like they were just about to let loose, mm. always just about to go off the deep end and never did. Really? Yeah. That's kind of disappointing. Cause, sorry, because I, I, I was always thinking that maybe seeing them live would be the thing that broke them um, for me. As a it was only in um, my mathematical mind, in the very end of the encore, did they sort of wig out a bit. But they always seemed to be on the cusp. And never, yeah. and they never lost control. Uh, Bill, sorry. No, I, I've always thought that that Spoon is a band that you need to see live if uh, if you've got any interest in them. And it, maybe it was a bit of an off night for them because I've always found them to be extremely energetic, um, 
they let loose more than they do on the records. And maybe I'll have more to say about Live Spoon on Hot Thoughts when we get there. Okay. okay. Emily, you were going to say something. I cut you off. Oh, I was just going to say, actually, just uh, listening to um, Nick Voice's uh, dissatisfaction. <laughs> it's, it's actually a little, that's it, helpful for me in a way. I'm just, I, I've been trying to figure out how to describe what it is that I've, this caused me to be less into them or, or, or especially kind of the albums as they go on. And it, I think that I want just something just a little bit more visceral. I think that's, it's part of the same thing too. Okay. Okay. If they ever came to Budapest, I'd totally go and see it. I mean, I, I'd be very fascinated to see them live. No one's ever going. No one's ever touring ever again. Well, no, it's no. obviously a hypothetical. Thing. <laughs> I mean, going to Budapest is always a stretch as it is, but obviously now. Um. <laughs> uh, okay. So in the previous pod, which was Queens of the Stone Age, at one point I mentioned that one of their albums was basically their Prince album, and that every, we talked about how every band has a Prince album in them. Um, it turns out that Spoon also had a Prince album in them with uh, Hot Thoughts, which really is the sexy guitar that from early on, um, trying a bit more disco, a bit of a, a electronic. Um, it was odd. The first time I heard it, it was not what I expected. Um, I think it's a really good album, but with one massive caveat, which is the final track. Um, I remember. I don't even know what it's called. I don't care. I listened to it once. Decided I hated it, and I was never listening to it again. Despite the fact that the album is perfectly symmetrical, and the tracks on the second side echo the tracks on the first side in the same order, to the point that track, the last track has the same uh, tune as the last track on side one. Doesn't matter. Doesn't exist to me. It's an awful, awful ending of the of the album. Brilliant start. And no one can tell me I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Bill, am I wrong? <laughs> I, I would say you're not wrong about that. That song track's called Us, and it does it does seem kind of a, a limp, smooth, jazzy way to end this album, which I think is really good overall. Uh, this uh, it's funny you mentioned the Prince connection because uh, it's always been sitting there back in in Spoon's DNA somewhere. You can hear you can hear that sexiness come out in some songs, like maybe uh, I Turn My Camera On, but way, way early on, I think maybe the second Spoon single, the B-side was a cover of Party Up by Prince, which they do, it. they do, they did a great job of completely transforming that song. Um, but they've, Prince has been in there all along and here they really, they really unleash it. Hot Thoughts, the title track, is outstanding. Um, do I have to talk you into it? I mean, just the title, really. I, I, do, have a, I do have a question about that one. I, I, I meant to go and do some research to find out what that song's about, because it always sounds slightly uncomfortable um, as a sort of, do I have to talk you into it? Do I have to? And I was like, wow, particularly as it's, particularly as it's an album that's all about sexy stuff in, in terms of sound, hot thoughts, um, kind of talk you into it. The, 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 it, sounds, it sounds sleazy. Am I just projecting here? <laughs> this is one of the albums where I've never pried into the lyrics too deeply. Maybe I don't, I don't want to. I, I, I listen to this album for, for the vibe, um, for songs like Can I Sit Next to You, um, which... 
you know, that that's a fantastic song. And also, I, sounds sleazy. <laughs> it does sound sleazy. Um, but early on, uh, I'd gotten divorced and was seeing someone new. Um, she's a jazz musician. Um, was really into uh, uh, older soul. And I took her to see Spoon because I had tickets already. And there was a lot riding on this. And amazingly, she came out a, a huge Spoon fan, largely because of the, the I think, some of the sexy, dancey vibe and the really solid drumming from Jim Eno. Um, but, you know, Can I Sit Next to You is, you know, one of our sexy songs now. <laughs> <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> The only thing I do know about the lyrics, the only thing I do know about the lyrics on this album, is on the title track, um, the lines "Your teeth shining so white light up the street in Shibuya tonight." Apparently, somebody ch- was chatting up Brit's girlfriend in Japan, and that was the line he used: "Oh, your teeth are so shiny and, and bright," and as if that was going to work and be successful. But hey, what do I know? We've, we've got two English. Two British people here talking to Americans. I'm keeping my mouth closed so nobody can look at my British teeth. Emily, um, how did the how did the Prince album hit you? Uh, I, I like this one a little bit better actually the, compared to the the previous one. Um, I especially I like the title track a lot, and I especially liked um, it's got the, the the name of the song that is always confusing to me because it runs a bunch of words together. Whisper, whisper, I'll listen to here. Is that is that right? Is that the name of it? Yep. I think you have to say whisper I'll listen to here. You can't really like separate the, the syllables <laughs> because of the way Whisper I'll listen to here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I especially, I have kind of a soft spot for songs that start out one way and then midway through kind of change into a different kind of song. And that sort of, that sort of happens in that one. It kind of all of a sudden it just gets really kind of fast and driving. I really, I liked that one a lot. So um, yeah, this one, this one worked better for me. I do think that the, the, the guitar on the title track are some of the catchiest guitars they've done for many an album. The Hot Thoughts guitar is just, mm-hmm. it's jangly and catchy and it gets stuck in your head and it, they repeat yeah. it for a few minutes and it's still there long after the album has, has finished. Nick, yeah, tell I'll... me you've got some notes and then the notes <laughs> are sexy guitar. Well, the, the title track for me is the one that is the one that stayed with me as well. Um, and and I, I can I enjoy this album. It got a few listens. Um, it felt like things had picked up from the previous one. Um, but that's when my notes run out. <laughs> well, um, we haven't turned Nick into, into a spoon fan, um, but to be honest, I, I didn't think I'd be that successful on this. Um, yeah, for me, Hot Thoughts is a great album, like I said, um, in my rather uh, rambly manner. Uh, they designed it so that the tracks are symmetrical with each other. Um, so you, you start each side with a sort of upbeat one with guitar, you end each side with the same uh, tune, essentially, echoing, uh, whether it's jazzy or, or pan. I've got pan pipes stuck in my head. I haven't listened to it for so long. I do like um, the title, the, the, the cover looks like Tago Mago. It's just a small detail. I to mention. Right. Yeah? No. Which I now know that the band didn't like and referred to as Vomit Head, but, you know. <laughs> That that panpipes reference makes me think of I Ain't the One. I think it's the oh, second yeah. track on side two. And there's no panpipes in it, but it's like it's got that really um 
really moody electric piano that sounds like something 10cc might have done in the studio ah, hold it out know, again 40 years ago yeah but I, but I think that's it i mean we get so caught up with the words indie or indie rock or alternative rock or, or whatever um but particularly like as an a, 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 an english person looking over to say the u.s um there is a proud history of very mainstream bands um like the hall and oats or some latter day billy joel or whatnot that it's not necessarily an embarrassment to say that you like in the uk we've always tried to a lot of us try to chase the next cool thing the music press has always wanted the next big thing immediately straight away and we churn through bands very quickly whereas it seems that in the us it takes bands a while to become big because obviously of geography etc and they, they've done the work and they, they so that it's like their third or fourth album be, before they get massive recognition and a lot of the time, some of that becomes a, a more of a mainstream sound, maybe, but it's mainstream pop rock. There's nothing wrong with that. Whereas in the UK, we've ditched those bands. We've ditched bands by then. We went, first album, brilliant. Let's put you everywhere. You're rich and famous. It's never going away. It's gone away. Go away. Who's next? And I think <laughs> the, the American sound does always sound often a little bit more evolved, I guess, by the time I've heard it. It's very rare to hear an, an American band's first EP. Um, Blow yeah, up. where they're where they're fully formed. Yeah, they get probably get some room to grow. Um, uh, so this album was about three years ago, I believe. As we're talking now, there is a new album due. Although good. obviously with, with the pandemic, who knows whether uh, they have enough time to do all the production that he, he no doubt wants to do. Oh yeah, um, I have no idea what it will sound like. It'll sound like Spoon, but not Spoon. Um, <laughs> Who knows? I mean, they did it. They did a single in 2019, "No Bullets Spent," that sounds like it. it it's a little rockier than anything. Um, I mean, more more rock oriented than anything on Hot Thoughts. A um, little more political too, in my opinion. But who knows if they're gonna slide back a little bit in that direction, or if that was just a one off they did for their greatest hits album. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully Spoon will release their, their their new album immediately after this podcast launches. That would be nice. I know, um, because then we, then we have to, then, you know, our uh, claim to be the complete discography is blown up. We're going to have to do a top-up episode. No, we don't need to. Um, let's just go. So um, I really like, insert album title here. I thought it was, <laughs> it, was, it was a nice return to form. What do you think, Nick? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Bill, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, Emily, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Emily, fantastic to have you back. And we will be hearing from you in an upcoming episode. Um, Nick? Yeah. Um, also, listener, I've been a bit rambly today. My, my, uh, so uh, there's going to be a lot of editing and me stuttering more than usual. So thanks for sticking with us. And we'll catch you next time. And I'll hand you over to Nick's goodbye after this. God, I love recording these shows. I hope you have half as much fun listening to them. It just remains for me to say thank you to William Shun, author of The Accidental Terrorist, Confessions of a Reluctant Missionary, for his loving introductions to today's albums, 
which he presented alongside Ewan, to whom I'm as grateful as ever for his unflagging efforts stitching this podcast together. We were joined for the third time by Emily Baldoni, who we're always happy to have on the show. Thank you, the whole damn lot of you. The Temp Fans theme was written by Jonathan Fisher, and you can find out more about the background music we use on links in the podcast description. Join us again soon, as we're always hard at work on the next episode, and we've got one of my very favourite bands coming up. Part of the origin story of Temporary Fandoms, in fact. It's going to be huge. I'm Nick Hilditch, and I go to sleep, and I think that you're next to me. <laughs>